Mark 7, and uh, we have just come to it. Verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. So, these Pharisees and scribes come down from Jerusalem to see this person of whom so much is being said. Jesus has centered his ministry in Galilee with occasional trips to Jerusalem. For example, at the feast times, but Mark emphasizes the Galilean ministry. Uh, but Jesus' fame has easily spread to Judea, to Jerusalem. And these men come to check Jesus out. Now, this is a wonderful God-given opportunity for these men. A chance to encounter Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah in person, and believe in him. But it does not go well for them. Were any of them impacted by this encounter and this conversation? We don't know. But it's not out of the question. There were Pharisees and no doubt scribes who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Pharisees like Nicodemus and some guy named Saul. As well as council members like Joseph of Arimathea. So here are these guys interacting with the one that God has sent into their midst. But this group becomes upset with Jesus right off the bat. Baseball illustration. And it's probable that they came for the purpose of finding fault. You know, they came before and uh, criticized him for uh, working on the Sabbath, you know, and for doing such things. And so they saw some of his disciples eating, not washing their hands. You know, he just fed 5,000 not that long before and I bet there weren't any hand-washing stations around there you know, for people to use. So they were eating with unwashed or defiled hands. The, the word literally is common, uh, which is what they refer to as Gentiles. You know, they're not, you either got holy or common. You know. So their hands were not necessarily dirty, but they had not washed their hands in the approved spiritual manner. 
It wasn't primarily about hands or dirt, but about a proscribed ritual that all the righteous people, according to the Pharisees, completed. You could scrub your hands every which way from Sunday, or maybe the Sabbath day. But unless you washed them in the approved ritualistic manner, your hands would be defiled or common. I've never eaten a meal with undefiled hands, according to this religious doctrine. It is a doctrine among many that was being taught by the Pharisees for being righteous in God's sight by some physical keeping of a rule. Jesus never made it about hand washing. If the Pharisees wanted to wash their hands in a certain manner, he didn't make it an issue. But they wanted to impose this extra biblical ritual upon everyone as a basis of righteousness. And this he did dispute with them about. Is someone more holy or acceptable in God's sight if they wash their hands in this way? No. They added their tradition to God's requirements for serving Him. And what they thought to be good became an evil thing in God's sight. So they, they would wash their hands in this special way, as it says here, that, you know, in the Greek it talks about with the fists. And, you know, we see from extra biblical sources the, the way that they did this. They would pour water over the hands to the wrists, sometimes running down the elbows. You think of the doctor getting ready to go into surgery or something. So, you know, the, it would run down. Uh, one fist rubbing the other hand to clean it. And then the minimum amount of water was one log, which is about an egg and a half. It's not enough water to really, you know, do a good washing job of your hands. So you can see it's a ritualistic thing. They do the hands up, then if you're really holy, you do the hands down and it runs off your fingertips. But if you're really, really holy, guys, they did this between each course of the meal. And Jesus talks about them, or says of them that, you know, as they came from the marketplace, they didn't eat unless they washed. And that word can mean take, take a bath, you know. So they were very, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness kind of thing. So the tradition of the elders that they're referring to, they refer to here is the teachings of the rabbis, schools of thought like Shami and Hillel, who often had rival interpretations. Hillel usually more liberal in the interpretation of the law. Shami more conservative, for example, concerning divorce. You know, um, Hillel said, well, the uncleanness that he might find in her could be anything from burning his toast in the morning, you know, or something trivial like that. And Shami said, no, only divorce for immorality uh, would be justified. But this washing the elders agreed on and they instituted so that every Jewish male was enjoined to keep this practice. And if one did not do so, then they were defiled. This is not according to the word of God, but according to the tradition of the elders. Jesus has no concern for their ceremonial cleanliness or uncleanliness. He's concerned about the heart of man and woman. When he fed the 5,000 plus, there, were no, there was no hand washing involved. And these guys may even be thinking and referencing back to that if they heard about it. You know. Well, it's a good practice to wash your hands before eating if they are soiled. It's good hygiene to avoid eating anything infectious or detrimental. Your mother told you this. You don't need me to tell you. But this is not what that was about. It wasn't about physical cleanliness or hygiene. E. Stanley Jones says about this, they came all the way from Jerusalem to meet him and their life attitudes were so negative and fault-finding 
that all they saw was unwashed hands. They couldn't see the greatest movement of redemption that has ever touched our planet. A movement that was cleansing the minds and souls and bodies of men. Their big eyes were opened wide to the little and marginal and blind to the big. So again, this is not prescribed by the law, but only by the traditions of the elders to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness. We have enough real uncleanliness to deal with. We need not be concerned about ceremonial uncleanness. First John 1 tells us, you know, verse 7, If we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we have uncleanness, we can go to Him. We can confess this. And He's promised that He will uh, cleanse us from this unrighteousness. So the Pharisees and all the Jews had many rituals of washings that were for religious purposes to be right with God. How many today have rituals they practice? and think that this makes them more acceptable to God. They may practice them as part of an organized religion or on an individual basis, but the result is the same. No spiritual benefit. And we saw part of the... Uh, a little bit off topic. We saw part of the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies, and you know they, they did the famous atheist anthem, Imagine. <laughs> so they're all saying, Imagine, no... no Nothing above us but sky, nothing below us, no hell below us, and et cetera. And all will, the world will be as one. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> it's not going to be a good thing. So that's a ritualistic kind of an anthem song that they sang together. But we're accepted by God, not by what we do for religious merit, but only on the basis of Jesus' work to reconcile us to Him. Ephesians 1, well, particularly verse... Um, Verse 6, it's within the context of His calling us and redeeming us. It says uh, that it would be to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. That's the basis of our acceptance to God. We're accepted in Christ, in His Beloved Son. All other ground is thinking sand. In Christ the Beloved I live. It's only in Him that I have life and am accepted. So they confront Jesus and say, why don't your disciples do what the elders say is the right thing to do? Don't you think this makes them unclean? Or don't you know this? So there's a veiled accusation against Jesus Himself. You're failing to teach them properly. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you're leading them astray. Because you're telling, you're not telling them, you know, to keep these traditions of the fathers. Look, Jesus, they might say, if you want to be a teacher in Israel, you need to get with the program. Start following the rites and traditions that have been handed down to us from the prior generations and the current authorities. They actually saw Jesus as being rebellious and lawless, the one who gave the law. So he answers, famous answer, well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's quoting from Isaiah 29.13, where it says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. That's the basis of what Jesus is saying here. They talked a lot about God, but they didn't follow Him with their whole heart. Uh, we know there was a man who came to Jesus. He was testing. It was part of the testing process. They came testing him and said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says the first and great commandment is, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So this they were neglecting but keeping all these trivial rules and regulations. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, perhaps for the first time, but certainly not the last. We all know what hypocrisy is. We just know it by nature, by living. But a formal definition is a person who pretends to have virtues, moral or religious beliefs, principles, etc., that he or she does not actually possess especially a person whose actions belie stated beliefs. Or a person who feigns some desirable or publicly approved attitude, especially one whose private life opinions or statements belie his or her public statements. We see this a lot in political circles and around. But the word hypocrite originated in the theater. Uh, the word Hypocrite ultimately came into English from the Greek word hypocrites, which means an actor or a stage player. So they're playing a part. A hypocrite is someone who's playing a part that is not true to their nature. They're putting on a show for the benefit of those observing. And the hypocrisy in this instance is a stated goal to please God by keeping His commandments, but actually placing other priorities before the commandments, and even negating or breaking the commandment by holding to their higher priorities. Hypocrisy is one of God's most hated sins. He doesn't list it as one of the sins that he most hates, but um, we can know it by the way Jesus spoke to this on numerous occasions, that God hates this hypocrisy. I think it can keep people from actually receiving forgiveness for their sins. It's, it's a very serious sin because it keeps them from confessing and forsaking other sins that they need to be forgiven of. So it's, it, it stems from the sin of pride. That's where hypocrisy has its basis or its root and it's a manifestation of that pride. God hates it because a person can use it to insulate himself from a true and honest communion with him. And this is his great desire for human beings. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What a tragic testimony it is to worship God in vain. That is without benefit. He's saying all your worship is empty. It's futile. Many seek to serve God by keeping certain rules or rituals that are not based upon his word. Many institutions have the Word of God and do not keep it. They ignore it, and in its place they put their own traditions or ideas. 
They trust in something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross. And this leaves them without hope and without God in the world. Henry Morris says those professing believers who reject or distort the scriptures in order to accommodate some humanistic doctrine. Henry Morris was one of the founders of modern creation science. So he says some humanistic doctrines such as evolution, uniformitarianism or abortionism. Those believers who reject or distort the scriptures in order to accommodate some humanistic doctrine need to study this strong warning from Christ. In context, he was talking about the extra-biblical humanistic legalism of the Pharisees, but the principle seems applicable to any displacement of Scripture by some human precept. And Jesus goes on to tell him, laying aside the commandment of God, you keep your tradition. Hit the wrong button. You hold the tradition of men, all these washings and so forth. So, um, laying aside the commandment of God, holding to the tradition of men. So, tradition, all together. Tradition! Tradition! Traditions. Everybody has them. They're defined as, here's a definition, these are formal definitions again, uh, tradition, the passing down of elements of a culture from generation to generation, especially by oral communication, or a mode of thought or behavior followed by a people continuously from generation to generation, a custom or a usage, or an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior, such as a religious practice or a social custom. So traditions may be good, bad, or neutral. We may have family traditions or religious traditions. Cultural traditions differ from ethnic group to ethnic group. That is, some cultures do not use, or for example, some cultures don't use the left hand for handling food since they use it for cleansing themselves after you know, certain procedures. <laughs> uh, McDonald's found this out the hard way. McDonald's restaurant, when they began advertising Big Macs in one of these particular, uh, among this ethnic group, and they showed somebody eating a Big Mac and holding it with both hands, and their sales, you know, <laughs> dropped precipitously. It's important to know those things if you want to try to sell your product in different places. Some, some cultures shake hands as a greeting, as we tend to. Some bow. Some kiss on each cheek. Or more likely, you see them kissing in the air because they don't really want to kiss this guy's cheek. You know, Some cultures stand very close together while conversing, like here. Others are uncomfortable with the invasion of personal space. All these are just neutral kind of things, basically. Most of these cultural traditions are neutral. They have nothing to do with righteousness. Some may, for example, uh, some cultural groups have a tradition of cannibalism <laughs> or child or human sacrifice in the past or the worship of false gods. These certainly do have moral implications. The Jewish people had and have many traditions. They had some good traditions. 
the keeping of the feasts of the Lord, those were given by God, and so uh, those became traditional things they would keep, and those were good things. They had other feasts that became traditions, Hanukkah and Purim. They remembered the past, and that's a good tradition. You learn from the good and the bad of the past. You don't destroy the past. Even if there are bad things that happen, you learn from that. Um, they had the tradition of the commandments of God, which they were negating here, but you know they, were, they took literally God's Word to bind them on their forehead, their hand, uh, around the back of their hand. And, and uh, this was for the purpose of you know, keeping the Word of God before you at all times and then passing them on to your children. Good tradition. Now, the synagogue was a good tradition in its origination. People, The people of God coming together, reading from the Scriptures, being taught from the Scriptures. You know, any tradition can start out good and become corrupted. Thus, traditions must be examined and changed or discarded if no longer good. And uh, this is very difficult for a culture to jettison, you know, certain traditions. They become so ingrained. Uh, they become part of that culture and many times part of their uh, relationship with, with God. Well, they had some bad traditions, like these things, that negated or rejected the commandments of God, such as Korban. Uh, they had Sabbath rules that prevented people from doing good things. They mixed the worship of the true God with idolatry. And this went on so long that it was a tradition. Uh, they were not entering the kingdom, and Jesus said, and they were putting obstacles in others' way of entering. Those who desired to enter. A very bad tradition had, they had was killing the prophets. That's a bad tradition. And I know it wasn't a formal tradition that they would have espoused or held to, but it was so consistent <laughs> that it was traditional. Well, many of them taught that speaking contrary to the teachings of the rabbis was a more serious error than contradicting Scripture itself. One said to eat with unwashed hands was a greater sin than lying with a harlot. The church had and has many traditions, both good and bad. We see the beginning of church traditions, Acts 2.42 for it says of those who were saved, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And these are still things that are uh, good for the church to do. They're things that God gave us for the strength and the growth of the church. The best traditions are those that are grounded in Scripture, such as communion, baptism. These are things given by God, just as the feasts were given by God to the Jewish nation. And then there are distinctives within different bodies of people that are traditional. Calvary Chapel certainly has a set of distinctives, and you can even find them by searching for distinctives. And I'll tell you about them, and, and none of them are unique to Calvary Chapel. Uh, the combination of them all together might be somewhat unique to, to Calvary, but they're things that Christians carry on and do. An example is teaching the whole counsel of God going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is a Calvary Chapel tradition. A Calvary Chapel tradition would be, you know, eating a lot, going out to lunch and, and having meals. And Oh, uh, and as Paul reminds us, the Hawaiian shirt tradition. So, you know, and 
there are other, you know, we're not the only part of the body of Christ. There are others that have different uh, distinctives or different traditions and uh, some good, some bad. Again, we don't have any bad ones. I didn't come up with any examples of that. <laughs> but there are bad traditions of, among Christians. Of one of those is an allegorical interpretation of the Scriptures when it's unwarranted. leads to error. Dress codes that exclude those in need of God. Uh, we're not talking about immodesty, but sometimes we need to have long-suffering with people who might come in that are not dressed appropriately from a modesty perspective because... You know, they need Jesus, and we don't want to offend them and send them away. Another bad tradition is a neglect of God's Word for ritual and ceremony. Teaching tradition above Scripture, for example, we've talked recently about Mary. Uh, Prayer to the saints. The teaching of purgatory and penance rather than repentance. All these things would be bad traditional things that have crept in. A compromise with a sinful culture, an ungodly government, or popular science. Reinterpreting scripture to fit with popular science. Uh, a compromise with an apostate church. We, we are to have unity as the body of Christ, but certainly not with those who are rejecting the truth of God. A bad tradition is the social gospel as separated from the biblical gospel. We are to do good to all. That's you know part of what the social gospel is. The social gospel is just doing good, feeding the poor and doing all these things, but not really giving them what they need to be saved. So that's a, that's a bad tradition. Uh, the prosperity gospel, false doctrine, bad tradition, health and wealth gospel, etc. Another bad tradition uh, that... The, some churches have gotten into experiences killing heretics. That's similar to killing uh, prophets. Except the prophets were the good guys. They consider the heretics the bad guys. Uh, but the church is not to go around killing people off. You know that Jesus gave the parable of the tares and the wheat. What are the tares? They're heretics. Some of them. We see in the New Testament, uh, Paul writing to the church about tradition. In Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes to them and says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Part of the tradition was not walking disorderly. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So some of the traditions of the church that they were keeping were following the example of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Paul mentions tradition again. He says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Traditions can be a good thing, right? Keeping good traditions. 
and then second, and there are, uh, these are not exhaustive, there are a few other references, but Second Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So whether he's saying whether it's a letter you got from us or whether it's something we told you, hold to those traditions. This last particular scripture, because he says whether by word or by epistle, is used by many to support oral traditions in the church. But that's not what is being indicated here. Uh, it is for these people that he's writing to, but some things were shared orally to the church at that time. But the things God has for us to keep have been recorded in the New Testament scriptures. The New Testament was not yet completed or fully available at the time of Paul's writing of this. Uh, everything that he gave to those churches orally by tradition is recorded somewhere in these uh, documents that we have. It was by holding to certain oral traditions that the Jews got into much trouble, as indicated in, as this instance in Mark. Some traditions were attributed to Moses as handed down orally, uh, not in writing, but God has spoken in Scripture, and that is our source of sound doctrine and practice. Oral traditions do not have the attribute of truth attached to them. The written word does. As Jesus prayed uh, in his prayer, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And you know many other scriptures, scripture cannot be broken. The words of God are pure, refined seven times and so forth. And these things are written down for us. Oral traditions may or may not be truth. They must be examined according to the written word of God. Uh, it's similar to the difference between it is written and you have heard it said. You now Jesus when he was tempted, he said, it's written, quoted scripture. When he said to them in the certain passages, you know, you have heard it said, he was being corrective of the oral things that they had learned or been taught. You've, you've heard it said, but I say to you, this is the way it is, you know. And of course, he had the authority to, to say that. If we look in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, um, he says, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So uh, the word of God is sufficient. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through these precious promises that He's given to us. So in all things, our word becomes back to the Bible. That was somebody's theme. You know, taught verse by verse scripture. It's a good one. Back to the Bible is a good tradition. That's where all things pertaining to life and godliness are found. Uh, there were also traditions that were warned against that involved false teachings. There were Gnostic traditions that we find responded to uh, by John and, and by Paul some. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 10, Paul writing them, warns them and says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you 
through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. He's all that you need, and His Word is all that we need for uh, discerning truth. Later on in Colossians 2 and verse 16, we see more concerning this. Paul says, Don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So these were physical things, again, that they would keep. And, and people came along and they would judge other people and say, Oh, well, you ought to be keeping. You'll still find groups that say, Well, you've got to be keeping the Sabbath. And, of course, that's Saturday to many uh, Christian groups that hold to that. But you really have to start on Friday at sundown. Go to Sunday at Saturday at sundown if you want to do it right, you know. But um, but the church has no no Sabbath rule. It's not a physical thing. We rest in Jesus. Now it's good to have a day of rest. You know, you need rest once in a while. But the rest that we need is in Him. Hebrews uh, chapter four. He goes on, verse 18 says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. These were some of the things that the Gnostics taught. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. He said, this is not doctrine of God, this is just from men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. That's what the commandments of men are. And these traditions are self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. There were those who were aesthetics um, and denied themselves physically many things. He said, but that's no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's not going to hold down the desires of the flesh, only uh, coming to God through Jesus and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can have any effect on that. So... Any tradition, good, bad, or neutral, that interferes with the following of Jesus by the Word of God is to be abandoned. He's preeminent. He's to be exalted. He is to be worshipped. Anything that takes away from this must be jettisoned from the life. We do not always know what these things are. We may not know until the Lord points it out to us. Now, He may come to something in your life, even a good thing, and say, give that to me. Anything that takes his place in your life, if you cannot put it in its proper place, he will demand from you, not because he's egotistical, but because that is detrimental to you. It may be a good thing that robs you of the best thing. All traditions must be held up to the Word of God for comparison and adjustment, if needed, or abandonment. William MacDonald says, One of the great lessons in this passage is that we must constantly test all teaching and all tradition by the Word of God, obeying what is of God and rejecting what is of men. 
At first, a man may teach and preach a clear scriptural message, gaining acceptance among Bible-believing people. Having gained this acceptance, he begins to add some human teaching. If you want an extreme example, you might think of Jim Jones. His devoted followers who have come to feel that he can do no wrong follow him blindly, drinking the Kool-Aid. Even, in his me- even if his message blunts the sharp edge of the word or waters down its clear meaning. It was thus that the scribes and Pharisees had gained authority as the teachers of the word. But they were now nullifying the intent of the word. The Lord Jesus had to warn the people that it is the word that accredits men, not men who accredit the word. The great touchstone must always be, what does the word say? Indeed. So Jesus cites for them an example in which they have negated the Word of God for their tradition. The the example of Corbin. It was an example of their hypocrisy. And uh, Corbin means a gift. Uh, And we have added here a gift to God because that was the context in which they would do it. And he, he says this uh, negates, makes of no effect, one of the Ten Commandments. One of the big ten, you know. Telling people that they don't need to honor their father or their mother. So the tradition of Corban, something dedicated to God, it permitted a son to be released from any obligation to care for his parents. Thus, breaking the fifth commandment, he would claim his possessions belonged to God and were therefore unavailable for other purposes. The thing is, this didn't mean that they had to surrender their goods or money to the temple. They could continue in possession of it until they died. They just didn't have to help mom and dad out. So it was similar to a bequest, you know, kind of thing. Well, sorry, Mom, Dad, I know you are you need some stuff, you're uh, hurting, you're in trouble, but I've given this to God, you know. Verse 13, he says, You make the Word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. He wasn't going to get out the list right then, you know, but... <laughs> He was telling him this. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul refers to these people, or Peter, I'm sorry, refers these people uh, to their aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So there's this aimless conduct from tradition that was being condemned. They were making the Word of God of no effect. What an indictment against the people that claim to be following God and His Word. We don't want to be guilty of any such. May the Lord open our eyes if we hold to any such tradition. In verse 14, Jesus says, he called, says, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So he declares this to this bunch of people who were there. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Didn't sound that parabolic to me. It sounded a pretty straightforward statement, you know. 
But they ask him concerning a parable, and he says to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. So Jesus teaches about this uh, defilement, eating with unwashed hands. He's been responding to the Pharisees. Now he wants to clarify to the entire crowd what truly defiles a man or a woman. Later on, Jesus speaks to these same issues in a couple of contexts. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37, he gets invited to eat at a Pharisee's house. It says, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So Jesus didn't wash his hands the way they expected. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, Make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In Matthew chapter 23, the chapter of woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, once again. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which men, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Contrasting the outside with the inside. God's not so concerned with the outside. The inside determines the outside. Clean the inside and the outside will change accordingly. And when a lot of young people were coming, Lord, with colored hair and strange clothes and things like that, the old coffee house, there was a lot of criticism of them because they didn't come to church the next week, you know, with a haircut and a suit or something. God had changed the inside. That was clear from interacting with these young people, but it takes time, you know. I was still looked like a hippie for months probably after I came to the Lord. I wasn't a hippie anymore. I'd been changed inside, but you know, it took a while for the outside. <laughs> In first Samuel chapter one or um, Sorry, chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, uh, 6 and 7, Samuel was sent out to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And he came, the first one that came was the firstborn. And he said he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this is the guy God picked. 
The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Proverbs 4.23, we're told, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's the heart that we have to guard. It's not, you know, if we get some dirt on our hands or, or imaginary dirt that we think has to be cleansed away. It's the heart that is the issue. Our appearance is not to be neglected. I'm not saying that. But it's the heart that's most important. Some people concern themselves only with the outside, the proper or cool fashion, haircut, skin products, etc. But God looks beyond the outward to the heart of the matter, what is inside in the heart. In Luke chapter 6, Verses 43 through 45, uh, we talked about good fruit a week or two ago. As Jesus says in verse 43 of Luke 6, A good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's not just speaking. but What comes out of the mouth is coming from the abundance of the heart. And so he tells them, listen up. Hear what I'm telling you. So they ask him uh, later, what are you talking about? Jesus makes the comment here, verse 19, where Jesus says it doesn't enter his stomach, it's eliminated, thus purifying all food. This is, at the end of the sentence, this is Mark's comment uh, that Jesus purified all foods, that you know, no longer was there a distinction between the kosher and the, he made all foods kosher, is what Mark's saying here through this statement that just passes through, right? Jesus makes Gentiles kosher. In God's sight, Jews for Jesus used to have a t-shirt, Jesus made me kosher. I think Charlotte had one. I know Paul had one. But, you know, you encountered Jewish people and they're like, what, what's that mean? Oh, you're Jewish? Well, no. <laughs> Let me explain. But it was a good tool of explanation. So what's being said here is like uh, food is only passing through. Your body's not its home. Like that hymn, you know, we're just passing through. This world is not my home. Food is passing through. Food, your body's not its home. Hopefully, you assimilate some nutrients out of that food. And uh, Jesus says, I'm in trouble this morning with this. Jesus says, What comes from the, what comes out of a man defiles a man, not the opposite way around. And then out of the heart of men, he says, come these things. Out of the heart of men, this is a fallen or perverse generation or race that he's talking about. There's no difference in men by color. All have the same heart, corrupted by the fall and made pure by the sacrifice of Christ. I was thinking about that term, people of color, yesterday or the day before. I don't know if it came from thinking about this or not, but I'm a person of color. You know, just a certain color. It's not, you know, somehow white's not a color anymore, right? 
So, and I know what they're referring to when they say that and use that, but it's just another tool for division, you know. We're all people of color and we all need to be together. What comes out of the heart of fallen man? Evil thoughts. These are thoughts of a bad nature, wrong, wicked, troublesome, injurious, pernicious, destructive thoughts. And this is where all these begin, is in the thoughts. It all begins in the mind. Adulteries, which is breaking of the marriage vows. You have to be married. One of the persons has to be married in order for adultery technically to take place. Uh, Fornication, which is illicit sexual intercourse. It's defined, it includes adultery because it's a broader term. Uh, Adultery, uh, fornication in general, uh, sexual intercourse between unmarried people, homosexuality, lesbianism, which is the same, homosexuality, bestiality, etc. These are the things fornication covers. Metaphorically, fornication is the worship of false gods and idols. So, uh, it's any intercourse not within the bonds of matrimony. And then murder proceeds from the heart of fallen man, killing another, not in the course of war or self-defense or defense of others. Not all killing is murder. The commandment is thou shalt not murder. There are killings that do not constitute murder. Someone may decide as a Christian not to defend themselves and say, you know, I know where I'm going. I don't know where this person's going, so I give up my life, but... uh, They should stand in defense of others if others are being threatened and not make that decision for them. I don't know if that makes sense. The other things that come are theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Theft, of course, is stealing. It's taking what doesn't belong to you, even through legalities. Inherent in the prohibition of stealing is the principle of private property. The scriptures recognize private property, and so that eliminates things like socialism and communism, which are used as tools of oppression toward men. Covetousness, the greedy desire to have more. That's one of the most basic sins of men. The commandment revealing, this is the commandment that reveals that the law is internal not merely external actions. You can covet without taking any action. The coveting is within. And this, is, this struck Paul when he realized that he was able to keep all these commandments externally, but then he encountered coveting and says that sin created in him, or the law through sin created in him all manner of coveting, you know. And he realized, I'm in trouble. Christ, of course, taught that all the law is internal. That is, murder, adultery, etc. need only be desired in the heart. Paul pointed out that covetousness is idolatry in Colossians 3.5. Desiring something above God. Exalting what I want above loving and serving God. Then there's wickedness. That's depravity, iniquity, malice, evil purposes and desires. Deceit which is craft, guile, practicing deception. And Ephesians 4.14, we were warned uh, to not be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Lasciviousness. 
That's unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence, which is overbearing. These things are a testimony to the hearts of fallen men. Look at them, think about them in detail. We need a Savior. We're not going to be able to get away from these things other than a transformation through our spirit. The evil eye is an eye of a bad nature or condition. In a physical sense, it's a diseased or blind eye is an evil eye, but in an ethical sense, it's evil, wicked, um, bad. It's used, this word used of, in relation to envy, the evil eye, you know, I'm envious of something, someone else. Blasphemy, that's slander, detraction, speech injurious to someone else or to another's good name. It's impious and reproachful speech injurious to divine majesty when it's speaking of God. You know, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish council for this sin, for blasphemy. But it's impossible to find such in any of his words that he ever spoke. How could God blaspheme himself? And then there's pride, which is haughtiness or arrogance. It's the character of one who, with a swollen estimate of his own powers or merits, looks down on others and even treats them with insolence and contempt. And finally, foolishness. That's haughtiness or arrogance, very similar to pride. It's the character of one who, with a swollen estimate of his own powers or merits, looks down on others and even treats them with insolence and contempt. Same definition as pride. Of course, this is a list of examples. It's not exhaustive, but these are some major categories that cover many other categories of what is found in the hearts of men, fallen men. To this list, we could add from this morning, traditions that take precedence over the Word of God. Evil it is. The solution then is to cleanse the inside. The only cleansing agent is the blood of Christ Jesus. In Him we have forgiveness by His death. In our death with Him, we are dead to the old nature and are given a new nature that's created after Him in holiness and righteousness, as we're told in Ephesians 4.24. So we need only walk in the newness of life that He's given and we can be pleasing to Him. Clean on the inside and clean on the outside. No hand-washing required.